Hello and welcome to Leviathan News. Today is September 11th and we have on Colin Platt here to uh, talk about liquidity. Uh, he has just joined the liquidity team. I have. Yeah. And is going to be leading or like leading on the product side. Is that right? The V2 deployment? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, uh, I think my title is head of product. Obviously titles is something I care a lot about, uh, for, for the V2 product that we're, we're launching next year. So maybe you could go into a little bit of your background because I know that you've not been like roped into, you've been like in DeFi and doing DeFi stuff for like a long, long time, but this is the first time that you've kind of like gone full time and probably getting, you know, paid out by a DAO or something like that. So maybe you could like walk us through what's been happening for the past few years. Yeah, yeah. So I, I kind of got my start in my career uh, working in banking. Uh, I work for a large French bank called BNP Paribas. Uh, I was based in London, spent some time in Paris and New York as well. Um, I started out doing structured products. So all kinds of weird financial derivatives um, with a variety of different clients um, looking at different ways to turn derivatives into, into investment vehicles of different sorts. Um, I eventually heard about this thing called Bitcoin back in 2013. Um, I think, I think the price had just hit a thousand dollars and I saw it on the local news or something, um, and started getting really interested in that. Um, and by 2014, I was, uh, leading a small group doing research for the investment bank into everything that was cryptocurrency and blockchain. Um, my kind of initial job was, you know, what is this Bitcoin thing? Can we make money out of it? Um, so kind of contrary to what a lot of people thought about banks, uh, now and, and back then was there wasn't necessarily this initial hatred, uh, at least outside of the U S I know that, uh, in the U S there were kind of differing views on, on Bitcoin at the time. Um, Ethereum came out, uh, a lot of that was done out of, out of Europe. There was a very big team in London, uh, looking at that. So got to bring them in to meet senior people at the bank. And that was all quite cool. Uh, then mainnet launched and I realized that banks were not going to do anything quick. Uh, so I decided to go out and do my own thing, um, spent some time building projects, um, did uh, did something for London Stock Exchange uh, around what we would now refer to as DeFi uh, on an institutional front, looking at clearing, um, as well as, you know, another a number of other smaller projects here, there and everywhere, kind of focused uh, on one end, how do we create financial products backed with cryptocurrencies to how do we do this blockchain thing or anything like that. Um, Eventually scared enough clearinghouses and stock exchanges uh, that we didn't get any funding in 2017. Um, ran out of that and decided to go uh, focus on this new emerging asset class that was uh, cryptocurrencies. So uh, got very lucky in a wave where lots of people were raising lots of money to do different things. Um, found out about NFTs, uh, did some work with those uh, back in 2017. Um, got really big into this trend with MakerDAO and everything that was going on there. Um, and started using Uniswap v1 uh, back in the day. Really big into DeFi, uh, did lots of work, uh, everything from advising companies to kind of writing some articles. I, I did some stuff for Decrypt, rode that around, learned how to code Solidity in the meantime, and eventually started doing fun things and said, you know, hey, uh, let's kind of wrap this all back around. Uh, now that we're looking and focusing on building here in, in 2023 um met up with the guys at liquidity heard about what they were thinking about doing for v2 and said hey that's something i need to be part of so you've gotten the full gamut now from like the tradfi space to like oh hey let's deploy fully immutable contracts that are unregulatable unregulated and, i like that and that's that's what you want to be right uh, yeah and i think it's even i mean 
regulations is an interesting thing because it's, uh, you know, I think uh, decentralization and immutability, part of that is unregulatable as, as part of that is, you know, being solid bedrocks uh, and being reliable and dependent. So I think that there's, there's some really interesting ideas in that design space that uh, really need to be explored further. Um, moving away from things like DAOs, which I think are interesting, but governance DAOs are kind of fraught with their own issues as well. Yeah. So <clears throat> curious to know, like you've been on both sides. You said you're building complex like derivatives products for banks, and then you've been in DeFi. Which is more degenerate, the TradFi <laughs> derivatives or the DeFi stuff you're seeing? No, no question in my mind. Cryptocurrency traders are way more degenerate than any banker I've ever met in my life. <laughs> The yeah, the, there'll definitely be things, and you know, back be when I first got my start, we were still coming off the high of um, the pre-financial crisis. I was in Europe at a, at a more conservative bank, um, but lots of the the traders that I met with, that I did studies with, that went to UK and American banks in London, uh, had some definitely really wild stories. Um, but uh, I still think, you know, you go to any major conference uh, with crypto people and go see what's going on there. Bankers can't hold a candle to that. So where are we now? And maybe you can give us some European flavoring because after the past two weeks of IRS guidance and CTFC enforcement, as well as this recent IOSC paper, the outlook for DeFi and crypto inside of America looks pretty grim. How is it looking on the other side of the pond in, in Europe? Yeah, so I think from a regulatory front, I mean, uh, I don't want to say that everything's rosy and great because that's definitely not the case at all, um, but it, it's not as dire uh, as it seems. Um, there are a lot of good things that have come out on the regulatory front, which are trying to move whatever it is, crypto, DeFi, broadly speaking, as well as NFTs to a degree, into some kind of purview. Um, and of course, Europeans are you know, very advent guard on, on regulation. I'm in France, so they really love rules here. Uh, they're very good at making up rules, um, which obviously brings a lot of administrative headaches. But at the same time, I mean, there's a reason that a lot of legal structures are still set up out here, even you know, moving, moving and looking at other uh, asset classes. There's a reason that uh, places like Malta, places like Luxembourg, places like Switzerland, have historically been very good for um, moving the needle in finance. And I think we're seeing the same thing happen in crypto. Um, and lots of the stuff drives me crazy to have to deal with. But at the same time, you kind of go, look, given the alternative of what's happening in the US, I'd like to at least know what we're playing with. And yes, you need to hire lawyers to fill out paperwork. But at the end of the day, you know that there's a path forward. You may or may not want to follow that path, um, but at least it's it's fairly clear. Yeah. Yeah. When I was going to the, uh, I forget what the Zoog meetup was, uh, the Crypto Valley meetups that they were having, uh, they were talking about how like the regulators in Switzerland were, were, you know, you could call them up. Like if you had a Swiss company and you wanted to try something new, they were open to trying things because it's, it's very boutique. It's small. It's a smaller country. And so they, they have the ability to work with these companies to, to try out different things. And sure, like if you look at, at what Swiss crypto exchanges have to go through to uh, comply with the law. I mean, it is quite it is quite strict, but at least they have clear regulations now about what to do versus the United States, where there's a hodgepodge of different regulators that provide zero guidance, don't talk to you, and essentially will just like slap enforcement actions on you post fact uh, and say, thank you very much, sir, pay 20,000 or 200,000 millions of dollars even. 
Yeah, I mean, the U.S. are famous as well for deciding what you did at some point in in past history is now illegal and thus was illegal at the time. Um, mm -hmm. and, and we've seen that kind of across the gamut a lot of things. Um, so yeah, like I, Liquidity um, AG, the company I'm working for, is, is a Swiss registered based uh, company. Obviously, speaking with the regulators there, that's, that's a very high priority for them. Um, and from my own dealings with them pre-liquidity, have been very positive, as you say. You know, there are administrative steps. It's part of dealing with any kind of uh, bureaucracy. Um, but they are, when they say they're interested in learning and listening, uh, I found that generally to be true of the Swiss regulators as well as other regulators. Yeah. So let's let's hop on to liquidity. Like we've we spoke to um, <clears throat> we spoke to them when they announced their V two. They actually like buzzed in mm -hmm. on. Uh, on the smartphone to come talk with us. And uh, we got a little bit of information about what was happening, uh, that they're building this like product that's gonna have like a leverage side and a non-leverage side uh, to it. And it's gonna incorporate LSDs. Uh, and there wasn't a bunch more that, that came out of that. So yeah. uh, over the past few months, and especially since you've come on, like what are you planning to see through with, with Liquidy and uh, what's kind of the, the general vision that you're gonna help execute there? Absolutely. So um, there's still a few things that are up in the air. Um, so there'll be things that I'll kind of be a little bit fluffy on here. Uh, and it's not trying to hide anything. It's just things that are in discussion with the team. So I started at Liquidity a week ago today um, and, and started looking at V2, what they proposed, what they're putting together, uh, and other ways that we can kind of work with it. So um, high level, first and foremost, what we're looking at doing is building a better stablecoin. Uh, and we say a better stablecoin, we mean kind of following this, this um, diagram that we call the stablecoin dilemma. And very much like other things in cryptocurrency, we have the uh, trilemma, uh, sorry, not dilemma, um, where we focus on decentralization, scalability, and stability. So what we mean really, really clearly there is we're not looking to add USDC or USDT on the back end to kind of prop up price when it needs to be done. Uh, is looking to scale, uh, so it doesn't need to necessarily be reliant on pure borrowing demand, uh, which is what we've seen in other stable coins, including our V1 implementation uh, with LUSD. Um, we can scale the coin based off of how many people want to actually borrow against assets. Um, and we're looking at the stability, really, how do we hold close to peg while maintaining these other things? It's a very interesting, complex design space, and we've come up with something quite interesting, uh, which is uses a lot of kind of options theory. Uh, and so... Uh, one of the founders who's a deep financial and economic researcher uh, has come up with a really interesting model, which we'll communicate more about. Um, so trilemma. Sorry, I saw the comment. <laughs> Tri <laughs> not, not yeah. you, you can go try something called llama. Uh, but <laughs> uh, so uh, really the idea of balancing these three things in a way that is usable. So let me talk a little bit more about why that's important to us and why we want to solve that uh, particular space. Um, I talked about regulations. Uh, we talked about immutability. One of the really difficult things uh, for any DeFi protocol is to be able to kind of take their hands off uh, and let the thing work the way it was planned to work and not guide it. Uh, and this is something we've seen with a number of other stable coins, uh, ranging from, uh, let's say, the more conservative ones, uh, and one I think we'll get into a bit more later, Maker and Die. Uh, very interesting experiments, what first got me into DeFi. Um, on the other end, we've seen things that have not worked uh, and needed a lot of kind of propping up. Algorithmic stable coins come to mind. Um, what we really wanted to do is be able to offer the benefits of decentralization so we didn't have to rely on real world financial assets. Um, 
RWAs and all that great stuff is interesting. Personally, it's not my focus area. I understand why people want to do it. Um, but what we're trying to look at is how do we use these decentralized financial assets that we have and create something that offers us the, the second point, scalability. Um, how can we offer these not just in a very, very small, narrow bandwidth based off of borrowing? How can we offer this in something that can move to the size that it needs to, to move to and scale down? So ideally, if this thing is successful, it can become a multi-billion dollar asset. Uh, the stability part, uh, how do we make sure this thing is always worth about a dollar um, or whatever other index and benchmark somebody would want to set up? So when I'm talking about dollars, the decentralized stable coin, obviously people are focusing these on to other currencies or other types of assets as benchmarks. Um, this is really important because you do have a lot of people and you know we're sitting here in 2023 in the middle of a bear market where they want to keep things um, even with inflation and those forces in something that somewhat matches a dollar because at least you know what the dollar is going to be tomorrow. Um, with all this kind of comes, where can we expand and where can we move this? As we're seeing more and more interest inside of DeFi as well as other products bringing in, uh, quote unquote, the normies, they're going to also care about things like a dollar. Uh, and how do we keep everything from moving into money sitting in a bank account that whether it's Circle and Coinbase or whether it's Tether are earning interest on while we're sitting here essentially funding that? Um, to try to make money doing anything else. So we think it's a really interesting space. Uh, and it's, it's as I said, was really interesting for me, obviously, coming to focus on this. Um, but that's what we'd ultimately like to solve with this V2 stablecoin. The how we get there, we'll talk a little bit more about. Um, but really what we're focused on is also linking up with kind of what are, what are some of the other ways to move that risk and people that are seeking risk um, to hand the risk uh, related to the back end of a cryptocurrency onto those uh, interested speculators and parties. Yeah. I think one of the strongest things that you can say about liquidity is that, you know, the contracts pretty much deployed, immutable, cannot be, the V1 is essentially out there, uh, mm -hmm. never can be upgraded or changed or anything. And that's looking more and more as a uh, huge beneficial aspect coming into mid 2023, where the idea of responsible parties, whether they be DAOs or the development team or other uh, parts of the, the chain of creators or even users of the product uh, could be held liable for these, these contracts that go out. And when you're deploying these, these immutable contracts, it's essentially out into the wild and that's it. And then you can focus on integrations and other parts. Um, like, how do you balance that with or how are you thinking about balancing that for liquidity v2 where I, the the design definitely has i mean it, it's it's different right so you're going to be using different aspects you, you mentioned options uh that'll be working with it and i think that'll be through like uniswap v3 and how that func functions in, in building these range orders um to be able to create quasi options so um, yeah so it's even um I guess a little bit tweaked from that. So we're using kind of options theory rather than necessary mm -hmm. pure options or, or Uniswap V3. We're trying to build this thing in a way that is um, standalone and composable um, mm -hmm. because obviously love Uniswap, uh, got very interested in DeFi because of Maker and Uniswap on the other side. Um, but what we've seen with Uniswap, which becomes a problem when you have a, an immutable protocol is they do upgrade over time and liquidity moves with that. So. Obviously, we've been talking a little bit about Uniswap v4 in the market. Uh, I think it's very interesting things to see. Uniswap at X, and they'll continue to have other upgrades, which I think is great to see that innovation. Of course, 
Uniswap V1 and V2 are still out in the wild. V2 is still very widely used. Um, so what we're looking at is, is also offering this ability to kind of bring in the way that an option works embedded straight into its own protocol. Mm -hmm. um, and that means being able to do some of the swapping features directly inside of it, which gives us much greater flexibility on setting pricing that works with a decentralized stablecoin, um, building a bonding curve around that. Um, and I think the other thing that you kind of hit on, which is a really interesting thing that I, I really appreciated when I started talking to the guys at Liquidity, um, their approach goes beyond just the contracts. Um, they have an entire plan around their front ends where they don't host their own front ends. Yeah. Uh, they're done by other parties that are interested and there are economic incentives built around this, tying that back around to your previous question. Uh, it's really about creating a market that people are properly incentivized to ensure that things stay in balance. Now that's a very complicated thing, which is why we're not you know, just throwing this thing out the door uh, next week. Uh, also, the market is probably not ready for that, but that's <laughs> another story. Uh, we can't control that. Hopefully, when we're ready, it will also be ready. Um, but we're spending a lot of time kind of researching, saying, what happens if we tweak this parameter and this parameter, uh, doing some modeling. We should have some news in the next couple of weeks about um, some parties we're working on on that front. Um, but there's lots of really fascinating heavy-duty research with hardcore econ <laughs> economists um, from the crypto area as well as more you know, traditional financial and economic backgrounds um, and looking at how we model this into uh, a very strong, robust uh, way to build these things. So I'm very excited to see some of the research uh, that's coming out internally as we're doing that and to be able to talk more about that publicly, uh, which hopefully we should be able to do in the next uh, weeks and months. Um, but it is really a fascinating uh, process to do that is quite complex. Um, and that's, as I said, why we need some kind of time to, to refine this. Um, but I am very excited to see it kind of got into the wild. Yeah, I'd be interested to know about how you guys are thinking about integrating and adding different LSDs as collateral. These LSDs, that we're still in the early days, and they're still kind of the flavor of the month where, you know, first there was Steph, and then Areth, and now you have Fraxeth, and now you have like 100 different other types of LSDs that are popping out. Soon we're going to have restaking of LSDs where you could put it into Eigenlayer and have extra yield on top of that. So like, how do you take into account like all these different variations of like staked ETH collateral and balance those risk parameters when building these, these contracts that are going to spit out, um, you know, like dollar denominated debt? Yeah. So uh, with staked ETH, I guess in short, we don't know what the perfect answer is quite yet. Um, we don't know if they'll be the perfect answer by the time we launch, um, but we'd like to find the best answer at the time that we launch. And there's a lot of different avenues that we're looking at. And I think the market is starting to solidify around a few LSTs, whether they're perfect or not. Um, we don't know yet. <laughs> um, there are lots of concerns around centralization on, on different things, some of which are valid, some of which are, are massively overblown. Um, so what I will say on that is I, I think that we're going to see more and more um, development, more and more understanding of the underlying risks that come with LSDs, uh, LSTs, sorry, in the next uh, few months. Uh, it's okay. We're, we're, we're pro LSD here. Pro LSD. <laughs> um, but, I, you know, I, I think they can really only get better. They're still very young. Um, we've yeah. seen this outside of Ethereum itself. Um, a number of kind of L1s, alt L1s are looking at that that had staking in it um, and realizing some of the, the pluses and minuses of them. 
Um, so I think it's really interesting research. And I'm from all the discussions I've been having, people understand a lot more than necessarily they comment out in, in social media on about what are some of the things they need to, to be concerned with. And I think we'll only see improvement. Um, if, if I can talk about, you know, Lido, Lido, however you pronounce it, um, some of the really interesting things is they can actually fix and amend some of the problems. Now, that's not perfect because it adds uh, discretionary aspects that are not necessarily immutable, which aren't always perfect. Um, but they do offer some more space. Uh, some of the other protocols as well can either reissue and implement and have new things. So this will be something that we bring in to offer hopefully the best risk uh, profile that matches with the rest of the product. Yeah, it's interesting you talk about risk because... <clears throat> One of like the biggest differences between liquidity v1 and v2 is that the the risk parameters are going to be shifting out of the application layer and into the consensus layer. And so now you have like two different, at least in the application layer, everything could be internalized to the code base, right? Mm -hmm. But now we have an external consensus layer where how Lido or Frax or how uh, Rocket Pool, they all have different structures in, in uh, potentially different risk parameters uh, that have data that needs to be oracleized off of the beacon chain, consensus chain, and then transferred to the application chain for usage. Mm -hmm. uh, so have you guys started looking at these like Oracle issues, how to get like yeah. uh, data provision from uh, these sources and um, yeah. what are you guys looking at? So that's something that we've done a lot of research on. Um, the team actually published a, a blog post not too long ago um, under liquidity, talking about some of the different uh, pluses and minuses of different Oracle solutions. Uh, broad sweep, not just on that particular type of Oracle, but Oracles in general. Uh, and have received a lot of feedback positively and negatively about it. But I think it does paint a pretty interesting picture about what is the space out there. So that is something um, this team, you know, one of the the interesting things is they like to measure twice and cut once. Um, so they do look very heavily at these types of things. Uh, and there are people that are much more qualified than myself on oracles. Uh, that's been something that's relatively new to me in my career, um, working with this team and, and their understanding on those. I did the on-chain NFT stuff so and things with AMM. So we didn't have to worry about that before. Um, but what I really do feel comforted by is when the team makes a decision, they have done a lot of research and motivated on that. Mm -hmm. um, I think the other thing that kind of comes in when you bring up oracles is it's not only about how well an oracle functions and some of the risks uh, and highlighting those inside of it. It's also about integration. Um, different oracles, regardless of how good they are, um, we kind of come down to Betamax uh, VHS uh, discussion because who wants to use which oracle? Who right. relies on the oracle outside of us? Uh, and who will accept an oracle is, is a very important part of oracles as well. Yeah. I mean, there's a bunch of different, there's a ton of different Oracle providers outside of Chainlink, but for brand recognition and just the ability that to say like, oh, hey, Chainlink's probably not going to fail and cause us issues, uh, which matters a lot when you have tens of millions of dollars or hundreds of millions of dollars in a, in a DeFi product, you know, you just stick with what works. And and we've seen a number of cases in, in the past where uh, Chainlink Oracles have done quite a bit to kind of help and save things. I mean, I think Curve was a great example. Um, when it was struggling, uh, part of kind of what ultimately stopped the bleeding was having Chainlink Oracles as part of that calculation. Yeah. Check the yeah. prices. Still struggling, sir. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll deal with struggling, um, but at least not bleeding out and dying. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, I did have a question. So at um, Stable Summit, uh, Lauko described some of the like expectation that the Liquid EV2 design would be delta neutral. Um, are you in a position to elaborate a bit more on that? Yeah. So uh, first and foremost, kind of having the background of a stable coin, um, we need to be able to move move risk and warehouse it elsewhere. So the idea is kind of if you look at you know ether, uh, one unit of ether. And you say, hey, there's some amount of it uh, where we can be pretty sure that the price is always going to be liquidatable above this. Um, we can kind of extract that and compartmentalize it if we move this risky bit to somebody else that's willing to back up that risk with other things. Um, so when we talk about kind of delta neutrality in that, the idea is uh, twofold. First is this thing should be fully backed at all times uh, with liquidatable, recuperable dollar values. Um, but also we should be able to offer something uh, that isn't fully uh, built on on credit or isn't built on well, at all uh, credit, which is some of the problems we've seen with algo stable coins uh, and some of the other RWA backed ideas. Interesting. <clears throat> now, we were talking online uh, before the show about uh, essentially when I reached out to you was when Rune had announced that makers looking into like a Solana fork to handle their off-chain governance, which is I'm I'm still not big brain enough to understand the end game. Like I've I've read the end game post, but uh, there's I think something about it which is on a different level. So like like for a carrot. <laughs> uh, so for just having some fun in the chat. Yeah, yeah. So when when you look at when you look at a project like Liquidity, which is like fully on chain, immutable, you know, very governance minimized, uh, versus Maker, which is essentially trying to be like a quasi bank and have this off chain, even off chain governance, like separating the, the the governance layer from the application layer for specific reasons. I, I don't understand why they would need to have millions of transactions a set or tens of thousands of transactions a second on a Solana fork. Like, um, yeah. like what, do you have any, do you have any thoughts on like, what's the, the kind of differences here in, in outlook? Yeah. yeah. So I think, I mean, there's a number of things they're trying to accomplish ultimately, right. Um, having lots of governance and governance that over time has proven that it is willing and open to having, let's call it less decentralized aspects in the protocol um, you ask a lot of questions about where Maker is and why it's on mainnet and why that's where kind of, when we talk about stable coins, I, I like to think about where the motor of, of these stable coins is versus where the assets are. Um, so obviously you need to have the assets, whether they're DAI or, or any other stable coin or LUSD or, or other things where people want to use them. Now that could be in mainnet, that could be in an L2, that could be in another L1. Uh, we've seen great example has been USDT and USDC. Um, obviously, their motor is a bank account, um, but they're willing to issue these tokens that represent ownership of that bank account in part, indirectly, um, in a number of different things from you know, EOS on one end, through mainnet, through Bitcoin, Mastercoin, uh, out in another one. That's where people want to use it. So if that's inside of a Solana fork, if that's inside of Solana itself, I have a hard time, you know, criticizing that. Now, the motor itself and where assets that kind of power this thing are um, does seem like a strange choice in in how they've looked at it, uh, at least on the face of it. But it does speak to kind of how they want to govern and how they want to manage it. 
Solana at Forks seems like an interesting um, choice because my understanding of Solana is that it is extremely cheap and scalable itself. So I don't necessarily know why they would want to have something that's an L2 of it, but mm -hmm. I could be missing something very key in that. Um, at least if, if we're to believe the claims from Solana developers and team, it, it seems like that could live in mainnet Solana. Um, maybe there are some regulatory concerns they're worried about, which does worry me somewhat um, because that could mean things like needing to have KYC and, and being able to blacklist coins, which I don't think would be favorable in any way, shape or form uh, for having these. That is something we need to, we need to, I'm, I'm seeing some of these great quotes here about treadmills. Um, <laughs> you need to have a discussion around, you know, what happens if a team does have these controls over it and what could they be forced to put in? Uh, what does that mean? Uh, from liquidity's point of view, um, we are heavily, heavily built into the ecosystem of Ethereum. And that's something that we believe very strongly in. Um, not going to say anything bad about Solana. You know, I think. I have no, no, I, th I think it's great. And. I think it's just interesting to see the the two dynamics at play where if you go back to what 2018 2019 with 2020 with with single-sided uh psi at the time mm -hmm. uh, then die and how it was just like a, a very you know simple contract you put in eth and you take out die and sure there was more volatility in the mm -hmm. in the asset itself but it was very clean and you know there was there was only one asset that could go in and then they started adding more and then they started focusing on peg stability and peg stability that it meant that they needed to allow usdc into the system and then usdc became such a huge part of it that okay well now during in in a low interest rate environment it's fine that we don't have to take usdc off chain but now that rates are five percent we have to. We have to find RWA partners that can bridge this USDC off to earn yield that we can push back towards the treasuries so that we can stay competitive. Uh, it's 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 a totally different shift versus what Liquidity is doing, which is staying completely on chain, still sticking with just at least in the V1 contracts, just having ETH in a fully immutable contract, and you know maybe making some uh, small. Uh, trade-offs for v2 to allow lsds because you're allowing more risk in based on the actual lsd providers and the, the risk parameters that they have uh but there still seems to be like a uh, how do i describe it it's it's a uh, purity of of ethereum like fully on the application layer and now like with uh, liquidity v2 also taking in the consensus layer as well too like trying to make the least steps uh, or the least the least trade-offs possible to be able to issue this dollar denominated debt on chain. Absolutely. And I think um, I think you nailed nailed it right there is um, when different made offs uh, trade-offs were made um, with the design space that maker was v2 was built with. Um, part of that answer was bringing in centralization. So now that we've kind of seen that and learned from it uh, and we don't have the tech debt behind that with with having v2, we're hoping to be able to offer that more natively. Yeah. So I got two more questions and we'll move on to the other news. So Billy Welch had a question about how did decentralized stablecoins solve the velocity of money problem and usability in the real economy? Yeah, so those are really good questions. Um, so I think first and foremost, I want to kind of hit with this model that, you know, not every stablecoin is meant for the same use case. So uh, just like every other cryptocurrency, we have a range from uh, money that should be designed to be spent in the real economy versus money that's not necessarily the case. Um, from 
No, that was not a Freudian slip. That's <laughs> the question. <laughs> um, it's money that is made to be um, used in, in other different ways inside of protocols. Um, LUSD has been focused primarily uh, on being able to be usable within things like DeFi. Um, but really what we're looking at uh, are some use cases where we need to have strong and stable money that can be managed by other code, that can be managed by protocol itself. Um, so things like DAO treasuries have been a big focus uh, for LUSD. Uh, things like uh, DeFi and decentralized derivatives are another very big focus area for us. And those are things that we'd like to see and expand uh, with V2, uh, learning the lessons we learned in, in LUSD and V1. Um, so I think those will be areas that we'll see grow and we'll see, uh, given what you mentioned earlier about having different rules, um, being able to offer that, have that stability and be sure that there's not necessarily uh, a government entity that could pull the backing out of a specific address or blacklist something uh, would be things that we'd want to avoid. Um, so having an asset that answers those is first and foremost on our list. Now, there are a lot of decentralized monies that that isn't their focus or it can't be their focus, but they are trying to focus on how do you spend this to go buy coffee or to go buy a car? And that's not to say that people won't do that with V2, but that's not necessarily the first and foremost of what we're trying to seek. Mm -hmm. uh, as far as velocity of money, I think that's very closely linked with that. Um, do we want to be necessarily all focused on how do we make money move quicker in the real world? Um, I, I'm in Europe. We have a very different banking system where money does move generally quicker than it does in the United States. Um, works different in different countries, but that's not necessarily um, necessarily a universal problem, I would say. Um, so having stable coins and being able to pay each other around the world is great. And that's something that I take advantage of a lot myself. Um, and I think that will always be there just by nature of having blockchains that can confirm these transactions in a matter of seconds rather than hours, days, weeks, whatever it is, depending on your, your jurisdiction. So really I had a follow-up question about, is it just collateral then? And how can LUSD been, be an interest bearing to make it more attractive as collateral? Yeah, well, I think that's, that's where V2 comes in, right? That's where V2 comes in. So um, yeah, don't necessarily need to be a PhD to understand that uh, part of LSTs is bringing in and having um, some form of yield. And the idea is where does that yield go? How is it used? Uh, and that's part of kind of the understanding and the building of what we're trying to do. Uh, there should be uh, some some yield in there, just like there is in LUSD. Uh, it may, however, not be in LUSD as attractive as some people would like to have. Well, have maybe an... maybe there's a maybe there's a it's not a trilemma. Maybe it's a quadrant where yield is the fourth <laughs> the fourth quadrant, right? <laughs> it's another dimension, even. No, it's a pyramid. Uh, it's like a it's like a three dimensional pyramid now, right? We're fine. Oh, good. Put a pyramid <laughs> scheme on the pitch deck. Here we go. <laughs> yeah, I think Kevin Joy already made a joke about this with Madoff. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's uh, it definitely. It's not only about just pure yield and percentage. A lot of people focus on you know what am I getting in yields, and that's been very very well understood uh, since uh, I guess the end of DeFi summer. Uh, it's great to get paid 100 million percent in, you know, random made up shitcoin. Um, but if by the time you go to cash that out, you don't get any liquidity and that 100 million percent becomes zero. Uh, that's not particularly interesting. Uh, if if the underlying motor that's paying your yield is actually Ether or staked Ether, um, that's something that I think most people are quite interested in having, even if that gets swapped back into something that's a stable uh, form of, of value. But what people are really interested in is is making sure that when it's X percent, you can actually get liquidatable X percent. Mm -hmm. 
And I guess the the last question that I have is just about like, what does it say about like stablecoins on Ethereum when it looks like the majority of of stablecoin usage is actually on Tron? Uh, <laughs> you look at you look at where developing world Africa, Latin America, other places are actually using stablecoins in mass, and it's through Justin Sun's USDT. Look, I, I wrote a paper about this ages ago when everybody was laughing at Tron back when I, Udi was at some conference uh, with Justin Sun and he got really drunk with saying, buy my shitcoin. Um, you know, I think you can feel however you feel about Justin Sun and about what Tron is or isn't. Um, I think if we hold Tron to the same standard that we hold every other EVM uh, chain, be it an L2 or an L1 out there to the same standard today. I don't think it's horrible. Now, is it the perfect user experience coming from a more pure EVM? I, I'd say that there's probably some left to be desired. However, uh, it has consistently been cheap. Uh, we've not seen a lot of the issues that we've seen in some of, uh, in some of the other uh, blockchains. Uh, having things like uh, blocks rolled back uh, and forks happening in some of the more widely used alt L1s has not been great, um, as well as some of the the ones that I won't get into, whether they're L1s or L2s, but some of these other chains have seen a lot of issues as well. Um, Tron's not had too many of those. So I, I can't necessarily say it's all a scam and it's horrible. Uh, did they take ideas and inspiration from other teams? Yes. Yeah. Does that make them evil? I would argue probably not. Uh, to the question, the point about, uh, you know, is that is that being more widely used? I know whenever I deal with East Asia, um, and people ask to get paid, uh, first and foremost, they would prefer to have it in Tron, especially in lower values. Um, and I've made lots of payments in, in Tether and in USDC, more in Tether because that tends to be a more popular currency in East and Southeast Asia in my experience. Um, but if you're paying an artist the 20 or $50, that's the fastest way they can get it. They can cash it out. They have local networks to deal with that. Who am I really to judge that? In the same way that if somebody asked me to pay on one app versus another, if I want their service, I'll pay for it. Um, yeah. So again, kind of coming back to the question we had earlier, it's not the same type of stablecoin for every use. Would I back a multi-billion dollar decentralized uh, derivatives platform with Tron USD or another Tron stablecoin? Probably I mean, not. Yeah. Who's to say? I mean, like, I think one of the things that we do engage in a lot in crypto, and especially, I mean, we do this everywhere, right? Is this, yeah. this like stormtrooper syndrome where... You know, you just say, "Oh, like, look at look at the ineptitude and inability of these stormtroopers and bad guys. Just they're, they're just bad guys to yeah. be able to do anything." And yet, the majority of uh, transaction volume for USDT takes place on USDT, far outstripping anything on on Ethereum uh, mm -hmm. or like day to day usage. And so, framing everything in terms of like, "Oh, we're the good guys; they're the bad guys." is is quite tribal and doesn't actually like lead towards anything and actually creates you know blind spots hmm. when when you know we should be like building and developing and trying to escape the clutches of the oncoming surveillance state that is going to you know kill DeFi and crypto usage globally and if we if we don't really like focus on that at the core uh we're going to be infighting until you know, we all get KYC through our MetaMask wallet and we have to go through an approved RPC to make transactions to buy and sell JP Morgan coin for 
USDC, and that's it. To be allowed to buy uh, some groceries. You know. Exactly, exactly. So I want to bring up this uh, uh, Reddit article that I have been found over the weekend. Uh, after we discussed all the actions last week, uh, there is a really great lawyer on Twitter called Grant Rainier, or Rainier Grant, one of the two, uh, who wrote this great, like, I don't want to call it grim, but it's a really nice article just talking about how Chainalysis geolocation metadata mosaics will probably be used to block U.S. citizens from DeFi. Now, it's not the greatest headline, but it essentially says that, uh, you know, the enforcement actions that just came now are, are just the beginning. If you look at what the CCFC has done, uh, so open, despite IP blocking the USA and blocking the use of VPNs, was still charged by the, F uh, by the CT CTFC for not going far enough. Uh, so what does it mean to go far enough? And he says that in conjunction with the 279-page Treasury proposal, the only way to do this is to apply massive clear and block lists on virtually all front ends by the Americans and then using companies like Chainalysis to create associative lists or lists of associations uh, where not only sanctioned addresses are here, but American, U.S. addresses, uh, Iranian addresses, pretty much anybody that is on a, a block list or an allow list, uh, depending on where they live. And so while you know Vitalik's out here putting out proof of innocence papers with the mean, it really doesn't matter, right? Because uh, right now, we have a massive surveillance network that's being built by the feds where they know every single uh, transaction that's going in and out of addresses. Uh, they're pushing for regulatory moats so that they control themselves. Um, and they're building this geolocation metadata mosaic of ETH, Solana, every single network out there. <clears throat> and they're going to use it to dox all of the people in all centralized exchanges and then use machine learning to tie addresses to blacklists and whitelists, uh, then enforce them with federal prosecution and extradition if devs don't comply. And he goes on to say that there are virtually no limitations, restrictions, or regulations against these chainalysis companies. They have uh, essentially like free use of all this metadata, junk forensics. He calls it the Patriot Act on chain. He says they are, they can, and they will be doing much more machine learning and basic forensics to build these association lists to give large VC protocols. Uh, and then he goes on to talk about like what the effects of this are going to be. He says that it's going to cause globally litigating all developer teams into using middleware to block VPNs a, uh, as like default criminalization of VPN use for DeFi, globally litigating clear list and block list for associative lists to even get uh, whitelisted for a front end, you'll have to KYC and it will be a de facto ban for Americans because no protocol will ever be approved and not has been so far. Uh, if your developer team or legal counsel resists the subpoena by the Americans, the DOJ will go after your banking relations in those countries. Uh, you might even get extradited, extradited if you're not American. So TradFi clearly uses whitelist blocking of smart contracts to suppress and merge uh, suppress and merge an acquisition and steal the industry while kicking the ladder out from everyone and building crony regulatory moats based on licensing and registration. And the SEC and CTFC have put out an extensive list of responsible persons. Spoiler alert, it includes virtually anyone involved in the protocol or project from stem to stern. 
they intend to dox, namely so they can hold them liable for collecting 1099B in the new Treasury IRS proposal. They want the full stack of developer teams hyperdoxed. And then he goes in and he posts the uh, this recommendation from the, the latest IOSC thing uh, that is quite long here and uh, essentially ends saying that people will live in denial of the law, how it will be applied to them until the lawsuits get sent to their general counsel. No one in the industry wants to read the language TradFi organizations are writing, what law enforcement is writing, and they don't want to look at the dinosaur comet, basically. Don't look up. And he says he might seem schizophrenic, but he's not. And they have intent, and they're going to use it. And United States citizens may as well become felons for even writing their own code to their own private front end to use a smart contract at the rate that things are going. But if you read all the legal language used by the SEC, the Treasury, the CFTC, they're going to dox the entire protocol team, the entire protocol, uh, the entire company. Uh, and so too is Europe and Japan. They want on-chain KYC. We're all in denial. And they want this off-chain front end middleware permissioning via whitelists. And we're all in denial. So it's coming. Scary stuff. Indeed, yet I do think that, uh, you know, they're not going to be that coordinated that fa that quickly. And so many builders will keep finding like new ways to do stuff, uh, you know, even more anonymously than they do now, probably. Because uh, this is going to be like a battle, uh, an ongoing battle uh, that uh, none of the sides is probably going to forfeit uh, in advance. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I think that, uh, a lot of what, uh, like we discussed, uh, like a few moments uh, before, this kind of shows you the fact that uh, you know, uh, all of a sudden, a lot of money is actually going on on Torn because no one knows what's uh, even uh, going on there. But uh, people don't really care that much. What people actually want is to be able to do all kinds of uh, financial uh, like transactions. And they want to do it in the cheapest uh, form possible. And uh, once they get, uh, you know, like a specific obstacle on, on one way, they quickly move to uh, another one. Uh, but this definitely seems like uh, some grim stuff, uh, the way he uh, presents that. And like I said uh, on Friday, I really hope and think that the U.S. will not really go uh, that direction. But maybe they already I'm, have. I mean, look at what the look at what the mantra right? Look, yeah. look at what they did with matcha matcha was an aggregator that by chance or just through its existing allowed people to trade the index coop fli 2x leveraged eth token which the ctfc considers a leveraged commodity and so it it uh, proceeded to uh, go out and bring an enforcement action against matcha for a product that they did not create by that was managed by a third-party development team yeah that people were able to access on an exchange that they didn't run. And the only thing that they did was provide aggregation services so that people could make the best trade. And they were enforced for that. Yet after uh, like, you know, uh, one time, two times, three times, after a while, won't the matcha developers decide that, oh, okay, we don't care. We're going to uh, like uh, another country to start uh, this whole thing. Uh, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Why? Because the U.S. can go after their bank accounts in whatever country they want to. Like I, I like, okay, uh, I'm Colin. You've been living overseas. I've lived overseas as well too. Um, you know, Colin, you have to go out and file a factor report every single year, uh, stating that you know I have a foreign bank account and I have this much money in it. 
and you have to tell the feds exactly how much like money you have overseas and uh, all banks all european banks all global banks that that take on any american clients actually have to conform to fatca uh it it essentially says that in the name of tax compliance uh, u.s citizens living abroad uh, have to dox all of their information through their bank and the bank also has to provide information back to the feds as well too so that nobody is actually hiding any money offshore and and i mean it's not only the us um you know also in most european countries they'll also require and and i imagine in other other countries as well they'll require that you report on any foreign bank accounts that you have so I, I live in France. I have to report on bank accounts that I have in the US or in the UK or Germany or wherever else in the world. Um, so it does go both ways. But I, I think one thing, I mean, the blog post obviously is is quite grim. Um, and I'm not a legal expert, so I'm not going to say the lawyer's wrong here, there and everywhere. Um, but the one thing I will say about uh, kind of taxes and regu regulations is um, I think it was a very good point that governments are massive. Um, and I think that we... Uh, in crypto in particular, look at them as one big bad boogeyman. Uh, and I think the fact is uh, different departments uh, ask for things for different reasons. Um, and they're not necessarily coordinated to say, we've decided you're bad, we're going to strip everything. They do still, in places like the US uh, and, and most of Western Europe, still do need to have court orders to be able to do a lot of these things. Now, that's not universal. Uh, and there is a very valid concern about, you know, a digital Patriot Act or even the Patriot Act itself being used and weaponized on these fronts. And that is something that um, is, is actually one of the, the original reasons that I got interested in Bitcoin was um, looking at systems that were more impervious to this, um, because I, I don't think that it's necessarily right that people's livelihoods should be threatened by um, governments looking in, not even finding stuff wrong, but looking into stuff and freezing bank accounts mm -hmm. while they investigate, e effectively putting you in financial jail um, until you're proved innocent. Um, I don't think that that's how the law should work. And I don't, even if that is uh, the way that we're going, I don't think it's something that we should just sleepwalk into. Um, so I'd love to see more thinking uh, about how to build stronger, more resilient things rather than just fancy new Ponzi's. Um, it's fun to play with them. I love, you know, uh, trading JPEGs and all this great stuff. But, you know, I got into this space because I want to see building better tools that are stronger, that build a better financial future, that is more resilient to some of these risks that we do see coming down the pipeline. And I think we can do it. I think there's a lot of very smart people here. Um, but it's really about channeling the funding and channeling the research and resources to those things as well. Yeah. And look, if you don't think that this, like... We don't talk about Chanalysis enough and what they're doing, but Chanalysis is based in Virginia, like right near the NSA. They're one of the many federal contractors that works with the U.S. government to essentially go out and identify and associate wallets and then provide that to the feds so that they can do their investigations. And these, these integrations that these uh, address tracking companies are going to be using are just going to becoming more widespread. And so it's naive to think that at some point uh, there's going to be this giant association list and it'll be easy. I mean, all the like with, with Ethereum now, there's no way to get unassociated money anymore. Like the only, like this is what I've been questioning, questioning going back to Bitcoin as a primary like um, 
as a primary like crypto asset recently, just because you can buy mining equipment and mine Bitcoin that has no association with anything at all. No KYC, no anything. Uh, but now that we have ETH and now that Tornado Cash has essentially been OFAC into death uh, for retail users, there's no way to actually break the chain of Ethereum nowadays and get unidentifiable uh, ETH anymore. It's, it's nearly impossible. And it speaks to really the, the potentially long-term preferences for, for Bitcoin where that, you know, if you just go out and buy a million dollars worth of mining equipment, you know, you may or may not break even, but that million dollars is going to turn into unidentifiable BTC at some point that has no trace and essentially has just been created on chain and is outside the purview of any sort of analysis company. We've also, I mean, kind of, I agree with you. Um, I think something that we've kind of gotten away from as well is um, when I got in, when I got into crypto originally, uh, you know, cryptocurrency exchanges existed, but you were always worried that you were going to lose your bank account, your normal bank account. So people had very sophisticated ways to do that. And things like local Bitcoin were still quite popular. Those still exist. You can still get somebody where you can hand them $100 in cash or whatever, and they will send you Ether to whatever address you specify. Those are obviously not without costs and risks and all that great stuff. But I, I kind of reject that, you know, all is gone uh, if people want to get it without having to go through a massive uh, KYC pipeline for the U.S. government. Um, there are still places where you can get things that are lighter touch in the same way that you would be exposed to rules if you want to swap dollars for euros. Um, in a lot of places in the world, that has very light touch KYC. Yeah. So we'll see. I, it's going to be a long process, but we do have the IRS regulations that are coming in in 2025, and I'm sure we'll be talking more about it as time goes on. Uh, I know that crypto lawyers must be really tearing their hair out over the past week with all of these new uh, documents that have come to light from Treasury, DOJ, IRS, uh, CFTC, SEC, everybody really, the alphabet soup of agencies really trying to put their foot down and, and use regulations as a way to, to stomp uh, up and coming developers from even trying anything and essentially trying to regulate all crypto activity to centralized exchanges where you can build these, you know, where, where the, the surveillance architecture is already in place. I think we can also spin that in a positive light where, you know, governments want to get the taxes that they feel are due and owed to them. Um, mm -hmm. And generally, you know, we're law abiding citizens. We should be paying our taxes, even if we, you know, hate doing it. Um, but we would expect to have to do that on fiat profits. Um, and if they're looking at making it on one hand more onerous for developers, but the other hand, making it easier for people that need to pay those taxes, I don't think that's necessarily universally a bad thing. Um, yeah, but it's it not being done in the name of taxes. I mean, we had a we had a functioning tax regime that existed before the inclusion of of the Patriot Act and FATCA and all these other you know totally, totally. tax compliance bills. It's yeah. not about it's not about compliance. It's about control and surveillance uh, at a base level. I think there is definitely a big part of that, and I think that that is something that I absolutely one hundred percent. Uh, disagree with, uh, and that was something in, in TradFi that bothered me as well, of you know all of the rules that the government could enforce, and, and finance is one of the rare industries where the private corporations are expected to be the police of their clients. And yeah. I don't think that that's something that necessarily 
we as a society should be in favor of. Um, how, how would you like it if every time you walked in to get your groceries at the grocery store, they checked your criminal record, uh, they checked you know, what you had in your car and would call the police if they suspected you for something. I think most people would be universally against that. But the fact that your bank uh, flags stuff to the government or the regulators because they think you might have done something wrong is a bad thing. Um, I had an interesting discussion over the weekend with somebody that works in a bank locally here. Um, and he said that they do a lot of policing when people send money to cryptocurrency exchanges, not because of the crime aspect, but because they're, they're worried about uh, if somebody loses money on cryptocurrencies, that they'll call somebody at the regulator and they'll turn around and say, well, the bank owes them money back. Um, <laughs> they wouldn't expect that from a casino. They wouldn't expect that from a stock <laughs> brokerage, but they expect that from cryptocurrencies. And I think uh, we've created such a bad name for ourselves that uh, and played victims and talked about how bad everybody is. We can have a constructive criticism and say, where are the wins and where are we trying to accomplish things? Um, and we need to focus on that, that positive, neutral, beneficial uh, aspect as well. And I think there are definitely inroads, um, but how do we focus on selling the positive stories, focus on the wins, focus on the things that aren't just purely speculative. I love them. They're fun too. Um, but above and beyond that, and not just how the government hates us. Uh, and we'll get there and we'll make it more difficult. Uh, we'll build things that are stronger, but we need to also focus on uh, why this is beneficial. And I think that if you look at the fabric of, of the US itself, I mean, a lot of it is about distrust for the government more so than in most countries around the world. Uh, and there still isn't an open ear, even if it's not necessarily uh, the Gary Gensis of the world. Yeah. So I wanted to touch on a different stablecoin subject for today. Uh, Mountain Protocol launched with USDM. Yeah. Uh, they are apparently the first regulated and permissionless yield bearing stablecoin. Think of a rebasing stablecoin that can be wrapped up like Lido's Steth and Wrap Steth, where uh, depending on the amount of yield that comes into the system, uh, it's going to rebase every single day. It's a very cool idea. The the ironic thing is somebody, we were talking about this in our Discord earlier, or in our um, Slack. I've been in crypto too long. I talk about Discord instead of Slack. Um, about the kind of irony of uh, US citizens not being able to trade US treasuries inside of that. So that is a protocol that um, they do not let US uh, residents trade. Um, yeah. So Mountain Protocol will only allow for uh, non-US people and people that aren't on OFAC or any sort of sanctions list to trade. Uh, interestingly, they did base themselves out of Bermuda. Um, I know the uh, Bermudian government had been trying for a long time to set up a digital asset regime that would be favorable to companies. And this is one of the first major announcements that I've seen come out of here. I'm, I think FTX was trying to do some stuff with Bermuda as well, too. Binance. I uh, had shifted some operations there, but um, it's interesting if they'll become more of a like crypto base over the next decade. I mean, I think we'll see lots of them kind of come and go, but uh, where there is TradFi, I think you will also find niches for crypto. Mm -hmm. uh, and then our last story today, we have like a drama alert. Do we have a drama alert picture overlay, Garrett? I don't think we do. We should get one because this is definitely drama alert. <laughs> so over the weekend, there was huge drama in the Vesta community as the two of the three co-founders of Vesta, Atom and Midnight Rage, uh, or Midnight, want to rage quit from Vesta. 
And what they're trying to do is to uh, use their vested tokens to uh, allow for like a rage quit where uh, the, the treasury is worth about $10 million. They want to essentially burn off their tokens uh, and then take part of the treasury with them and just like leave the uh, leave the community. And so that was the first response. Oh, there was also like a dissolve uh, proposal as well too, just to dissolve the whole thing and, and not continue working. Uh, a little while later, the third co-founder came out and essentially said that, oh, hey, no, these are terrible ideas. And this still looks to be like a hostile takeover. Uh, there had been some issues about cultural misalignment between some of the founders, and they are trying to uh, essentially push the token price up. It was at about 14 cents, and now it's heading towards 40 cents as people try to engage in this RF hostile RFV uh, uh, behavior. The trials of governance. I think this reminds me, I think there was a discussion in the Nouns DAO as well of something not not exactly the same, but people being able to essentially um, return tokens to get the treasury value out of it. Mm -hmm. um, so this is obviously kind of a different vector for that, but I think uh, where there's lots of money and it's harder to kind of come across, oh, there we go. Yeah. Uh, harder to necessarily come across new revenues, people will start to look at, to claim what's out there, uh, either to do new things with it or to you know, disassociate themselves from a project they don't want to be in. Um, that's the state of the market. I'm not surprised. Um, and I think we're, we're seeing kind of the overhang of what was, let's all have these valueless governance tokens starting in 2020. <laughs> and huge treasuries as well, too. Huge treasury. Huge treasury. Also, uh, I think it uh, communicates well with your point uh, from the beginning of the uh, interview, uh, Colin, about, uh, you know, DAOs. It's not exactly what we have always, uh, like maybe, like we always hope it uh, to be, and it doesn't uh, necessarily something that works uh, smoothly, to say uh, the least. And I think that uh, we're actually, uh, we're seeing this process of uh, like uh, this whole DAO thing, uh, how it can have all kinds of like different interpretations and uh, like uh, what kind of different and specific uh, stuff can basically just happen when you run things uh, in this kind of uh, an organizational manner with uh, both uh, ups and downs, for sure. Absolutely. I mean, I guess I, everybody needs to kind of review what they're getting into when they get into any of these crypto things and whether there's a governance component. I don't think people should be surprised when um, people try to exercise the rights that they paid for by buying these tokens or earning these tokens. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. So uh, last question for you, Colin, is that did you pass the test to become a French influencer? You know, I, I'm trying. Uh, they released all their guidance. Uh, I looked. They don't have the tests open yet. They have. So apparently there's they're in like their eighth iteration of a global influencer certificate in France. Um, and what they released last week is their financial uh, one. So I definitely will take this because if nothing else, it seemed like it'd be kind of a funny thing. So I'll take it and write a blog post about what, what it has. <laughs> Are you even allowed to come on this podcast before taking this test? Yeah. You know, it doesn't exist yet. So I have to hope. <laughs> Maybe it's, no, only it, when it's French. It's, it is a very, very French thing to do. I don't think it's a horrible idea um, because if you look at, 
talk about some of the influencers that have been in the news. You look at BitBoy, you look at some of the other people that are out there. There are a lot of things that uh, a number of these influencers that have done when they have come out to the public light. People wish that they had been disclosed differently at a minimum. Um, so I think it's it's not a horrible initiative to do it and give people framework uh, for it. Uh, it is kind of a funny initiative the way they have done it. It is very French. It is very French. Well, we'll leave it at that. Colin, thank you so much for being here today. Appreciate the insights. It was great. Yeah. And uh, Garrett, Chief Advisor, great seeing you. And everybody else that tuned in on this wonderful Monday, September 11th, thank you for being here. And we'll see you tomorrow. Amen. Goodbye, folks. <laughs>